It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We are going to give you the complete back and forth uh, and the latest on the virus. But we begin tonight uh, with Congressman Patrick McHenry. He is a Republican representing the great state of North Carolina. And he joins us on the telephone line. Congressman, before we talk about Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying, as well as Treasury Secretary Mnuchin testifying before the House Financial Services Committee, of which you are a member, a prominent member, dare I say, um, your reaction to Fauci, to Pence and what we learned about the coronavirus. Uh, well, I mean, those are striking numbers. Number one, um, uh, that's that's how I I think of it. Number, uh, I, I would think additionally, um, the the focus needs to be on testing. Number one, at, at, at the federal level. Number two, getting a treatment regime um, that is that is understandable understandable to the pu- public. Uh, so that we in the public know if you get sick, this is how they'll treat you. Uh, and uh, that's number two. Number three, a vaccine. But that is obviously a, a much more challenging thing to get to market. The efficacy of it, uh, it must be there. And so uh, it, it needs to be uh, it, you know, going through the uh, rigorous tr- clinical trials and understanding of all that. So I think that's going to take more time. But on top of those things, we, we in the public also need to know how we control these risk factors. How can you safely be out in public, right? W- what's the value of social distancing? What's the value of masks? Give me the circumstance uh, for all this. And so, so for me, it's, all, it's the risk mitigation question. We know it's risky, uh, but I, you know, the, the more we're able to quantify those risks, the greater adherence I think we'll have to mask wearing, and social distancing, right. uh, which, 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 are, which are powerful tools. So Congress- that's how I think about this stuff. Congressman, I want to get to the, the hearing, but I just want to ask one more follow-up question, because have you been following what's been happening in the UK? Prime Minister Boris Johnson committed to spend billions of do- pounds, <laughs> dollars, pounds, uh, on infrastructure in order to rebuild the UK economy. The president has talked about an infrastructure package plan here in the United States. Boris Johnson, Bojo, obviously very... Um, conservative. Is that something that conservatives have the appetite for in the fall infrastructure? Well, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, and you've got uh, Republicans divided on this issue. I think it's a reasonable thing. And it's especially reasonable because uh, you see state budgets where uh, the first thing they, spend, they, they cut is infrastructure spend, long-term capital expenditures. And so I, I think it's, uh, I think this is, this would be the right time for us to engage in a smart infrastructure spend around the next generation of infrastructure. I think that's smart. Our, our, our capacity to get funding 
for that is 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 pretty strong right now. Um, and and I think this is a high time to sort of leap forward in terms of our infrastructure. I think so. All right. I want to ask you about what you heard from Secretary Mnuchin today, because you asked something that I cover extensively, and that's about the small businesses, because 4.5 million small businesses benefited from the program, but the average loan size is incredibly modest. What did we learn about repurposing the $134 billion that's still left over from that PPP that, quite honestly, these small businesses need, Congressman? You know that. I, I do, and you know, 4.6 million small businesses taking advantage of this program. Uh, was it was because it wasn't because they had a team of lobbyists. It yep. was because the need was there to support their payroll. After all, that's what it was called—the Paycheck Protection Program—and so it was, um, or the Payroll Protection Program. So it's about ensuring that you actually uh, get people still connect with their employer, and that they can, for a period of time. Uh, continue to have that connection, even though the business isn't isn't going. And so I, it was quite effective. Um, and for a government program, it was one of the more effective at getting uh, dollars in people's hands and saving millions of small businesses. And so what we heard today is that um, the secretary is supportive of repurposing that fund, those funds, uh, for additional relief, especially in, uh, especially in, in, in folks that were not able to uh, utilize it effectively in the initial go of the Paycheck Protection Program. Okay, so w- translate that. What does that mean? Does that mean that there's going to have to be, when they say repurpose, what does that mean? That means there's going to be another program that's going to be similar to, um, but with a, a different set of uh, uh, availability. Um, okay. And so... I think that's good. I think the additional thing that I'm supportive of is the Express and 7A program, loan programs, uh, getting more funding, which are two ready SBA programs that have, that have, that have had long-term effectiveness and uh, small businesses are, are accustomed to utilizing and lenders are accustomed to making those loans. I think we need to ensure that there's plenty of money in those programs as well. All right, switching gears. Congressman Patrick McHenry is on the line. He's one of the top Republicans, if not the top Republican, on the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, he was at the hearing today with Fed Chair Jay Powell, as well as U.S. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. We're talking about small businesses and access to that. I, I have to follow up on the point that there's leftover money for small businesses. I mean, that is really difficult, I think, for many people to wrap their heads around because for many of these small businesses, they couldn't get the cash fast enough. They couldn't get the loans quick enough. The big businesses, as you mentioned, they have the lobbyists, they have the lawyers, they're able to wait. But these small businesses that really are like 48% of the U.S. economy and responsible, the engine for the American economy, they couldn't wait. And so I guess what it, it's it's really a reflection, I would argue, of the success and also the limitations, not failures, limitations of these massive policies that have been coming out of government. But do you think that there's anything that could be done to in the repurposing that would allow for that for that money to get there faster? And if so, what? Um, no, I mean they're only the, the the two fastest mechanisms in our society to get money out the door for the federal government. Our banks and insurers. Those are the two fastest, readiest ways, because insurance, insurance policies are ubiquitous across society. Um, most people um, have some con- connection to a financial institution and are therefore able to get paid uh, via their employer, 
um, or, um, or, or traditional banks um, um, uh, or traditional banking relationships. So those are the two fastest ways. That's why the Paycheck Protection Program was so effective is that lenders were in the, the driver's seat of getting those dollars out. Um, so when we're looking at these programs to get relief, to stand up the economy for this temporary shutdown uh, that we're enduring because of this health crisis, um, I think we have to look at those institutions, uh, the people's working relationships, their employer relationships, um, support for gig workers um, and, uh, and small businesses. Um, I think those are the ready ways to, to grant support. All right. And now I want to pivot to the Fed chairman, because one of the points that, that you raised, well, first of all, he I, I do just want to say what Powell said. He said, quote, we have entered an important new phase and have done so sooner than expected. While this bounce back in economic activity is welcome, it also presents new challenges, notably the need to keep the virus in check. It's It's been a fascinating day to have Fed Chair Powell uh-huh. testify, hey, we're doing this better than expected. And Fauci, meanwhile, saying wear a mask and, you know, this is going to be 100,000, you know, cases a day. I mean, it's two very different developments. But I want to ask you something that you had said for the purposes of our economic audience, which was you said, Chair Powell, you've been transparent, but how are you going to let us know which metrics you're going to use over the next at least couple of months in terms of how you're going to use the central bank to help the recovery? What did you find out about his transparency on this issue? Not much. Um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, what what's a hallmark of of, of uh, Jerome Powell's leadership of the Federal Reserve is his language, right? The hallmark of his leadership is sort of this honest uh, honest assessment, and he said these are quite uncertain times, and so we're going to be pragmatic in our approach, and that's what we put um, uh, uh, banks that. They have oversight over it. That's what they conveyed. Said we're going to look at your, um, we're going to look at the capital regime for the largest banks, and we're going to review it uh, sometime soon. And and so the institutions want some certainty. But they want to know uh, when. They want to know to what extent, and all this other stuff. And the, the truth was uh, from Powell is that in terms of regulation to ensure that, that banks um, have adequate capital. Um, the Fed will just be reviewing this based off of what's happening with the virus, what's happening with the economy, and therefore those effects on financial institutions. Um, and so, I, quite frankly, I, I was, uh, it, it was it was not the answer I wanted. However, it was a sufficient answer because of the level of honesty that he, um, it, that he was conveying this. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina, giving us all of the lowdown on the coronavirus as well as uh, the, the testimony from Fed Chair Jay Powell and U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Hey, Congressman, thank you very much. I appreciate the time as always. Thank you. And coming up on the program, we're going to pivot back to Hong Kong. We will discuss all of the latest on Hong Kong and the Commerce Secretary's decision to revoke that status. Plus, we dive into 2020 politics with Adam Hodge, formerly of the Obama Obama uh, 
there it is, Treasury Department. So we've covered every angle, and we're also going to check in with George C. He is the CEO of Annandale Capital, Texas businessman and senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. Lots to get through, folks. I got my license back thanks to the folks at the DMV. You know, socially distant, waiting in line. I got it. I got it. Make an appointment. And here's a pro tip. If you have an appointment at the DMV, go early because the line is very long. Uh, that does it for me for right now. But coming up, we have much more programming. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for uh, Bloomberg Radio. And uh, my friend Tammy called me on the way back from vacation. She was down the down the. You guys say down the beach. I grew up saying down the shore. But anyway, she was on vacation with her family. And she goes, oh, I thought of you. I stopped at a Wawa. I thought, you know, that's the nicest thing anybody said to me in a while. You know, you stop at a convenience store. Thank you, Kev. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, our next guest, speaking of which, it got me thinking of um, barbecues this weekend and all the good food. Fourth of July, barbecue. Our next guest is from Arkansas and knows a thing or two, likely, about barbecue, hopefully. Anna Ashton, Senior Director, <laughs> Government Affairs of the U.S. China Business Council. Anna, where's the best place to barbecue in Arkansas? Oh, gosh. Uh, people from Arkansas will hate me for saying this, but Memphis. Wow! Even I know that. A kid from <laughs> Delco knows you don't say that. Okay, give me the backstory before I talk about Hong Kong. Why'd you say Memphis? Ah, I just think Memphis has the best barbecue of anywhere in the country. All right. What do you get? And Memphis is honestly not far from from where I grew up. It's not that there. long of a drive, so maybe I'm biased for that reason. I, the producers are about to cringe, but I hope they're listening. I've been walking in Memphis <laughs> once before in my life. Anyway, okay, Hong Kong, uh, fallout. Okay, the U.S. revoked its uh, special trading status. The National People's Congress Standing Committee earlier on today adopted a decision to write the legislation into the former British colony's law. Uh, by saying right. by signing a landmark national security law for Hong Kong, which is a sweeping attempt to quell dissent that drew fresh U.S. retaliation and could 
endanger the city's appeal as a financial hub. Your reaction? Well, so we're still trying to uh, fully unpack and assess what we see in the law or in the information about the law that we have available so far. Um, but what we can say is that um, it is it is not as sweeping as well. It, it's not that it's not sweeping. It's not as clear as we might have expected exactly what the ramifications will be for business. There, it creates a new commission that reports to Beijing that's responsible for national security in Hong Kong. We knew that would happen. Uh, there's some vague language that may allow for other aspects of China's national security system to be applied in Hong Kong, and it creates some new crimes with maximum punishment of life in prison. But in terms of exactly what the impact will be on business, we're still, we're still going to have to wait and see. Um, the the U.S. actions in the meantime to revoke various special treatment privileges under the 1992 Hong Kong Democracy Act and the special treatment that has been afforded to Hong Kong since then uh, also don't have immediate clear ramifications for business. It really is just a matter of how how specifically they end up being applied. So we know, for instance, that there are going to be visa restrictions on certain Chinese officials, and we don't know who those officials are going to be. We know that there may be sanctions, but who will the sanctions be applied to and how will China react to that? And we know um, that there is going to be an adjustment of export control policies so that they um, there are no special carve-outs for Hong Kong anymore. But beyond that, you know, we're still kind of playing a waiting game. One good piece of news, we do understand from conversations with the administration that, at least for now, the objective is, is simply to increase pressure on Beijing and to limit the impact of, on Hong Kong residents and U.S. companies at the same time. So, you know, there are a couple of drastic things that might happen under the 2019 Hong Kong Autonomy Act. Now that we've, you know, got the State Department deciding that Hong Kong isn't sufficiently autonomous, the biggest one is, from our view, that the, the president could decide to declare an emergency and under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act say that uh, the dollar and the Hong Kong dollar are no longer freely available, which would change the way that uh, Hong Kong's dollar is pegged and would hurt the financial system and the stability of Hong Kong as a place to do business. All right, that's where I want to focus. That's where I want to focus. Okay. Right, you don't think it's in the cards yet, but what? let's let's go over that. So the, the State Department and the Treasury Department, Mnuchin, Pompeo, Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary Pompeo, can get their, Ross, they can get their heads together and they can do what? And and it would and it would cause some financial instability in in the, in which markets? In the Hong Kong market. So okay. uh, basically, for a very long time now, Hong Kong's dollar has been pegged to the U.S. dollar, which has been a significant source of uh, financial stability in Hong Kong. And if the president, because, because there's been this decision that Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous to merit special status under U.S. law, the president could declare an emergency and under his sanctioning powers under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA, he could IEPA. Yep. dictate. Yeah, he could dictate that that the U.S. dollar is no longer freely convertible with the Hong Kong dollar. That would make it very hard for the Hong Kong dollar to remain pegged to the U.S. dollar. And if if that peg were to dissolve, then that would make it hard for Hong Kong to maintain the sort of reliable financial stability that it has had. But Again, I don't think that we um, see that around the corner at all. 
which All is right, good. Fascinating. One more question for you, Anna uh, Ashton. She's Senior Director of Government Affairs at the U.S.-China Business Council. So appreciative of your time. We talked about the economics in terms of what happened from an economic standpoint, but just the symbolism of the last 24 hours uh, and what this means for U.S.-China relationships and what it means for the pro-democracy Hong Kongers who have been, you know, really just in many ways profiles in courage as they've risked mm. their lives, risked danger, and the tension now really just upside down as a result of this, what the Communist Party would say is a national security law, but what others wouldn't clarify it as much. So what does it mean for this moment uh, from a historical context? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's a sad day for U.S.-China relations. It's a sad day uh, for Hong Kong. I don't think that uh, anyone really wants to see the situation that's unfolding, and uh, and I'm afraid that you know all of this is is among numerous developments in the U.S.-China relationship uh, and on the ground in China that are going to make it more and more difficult for the commercial relationship to be navigated yeah. in a healthy and sustainable way. And so yeah. Yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> It's where we are. Anna Ashton, Senior Director of Government Affairs at the U.S.-China Business Council. I very much appreciate your time and your insights. I'm, let's reset here. Thanks I'm so Kevin, much, Kevin. Of course, anytime. Let's reset here. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We are following multiple fronts tonight, including international relations as it relates to the U.S.-China-Hong Kong dynamic. And, of course, what's been going on on Capitol Hill virtually as Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying before the House Financial Services Committee. And then, in contrast, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious diseases control expert, also testifying before Congress and issuing a stark warning, a stark warning about uncertainty in the path to recovery that lies ahead. Our next guest is an expert in Texas where this has resurged, but also, of course, in the economy. He is a great friend of the program. His name is George C. He is CEO of Annandale Capital, a Texas businessman and a senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. George, what has it been like in the past couple of days in Texas where you are as the virus has continued to rise despite some of the optimism that we've seen in the economy? You know, Kevin, gr great to be back. Love being on your show, as you know. Um, Thank you. I, I think that it's really – there's so much fear out there and so much unsettled, and so many people are disturbed, and they've been in isolation too long, and it's affecting their quality of life and everything else. And I think everybody hits the panic button a little too fast. I looked at the stats, and Texas ranks 15th in deaths for states. Now, one death is too many. But we are seeing a rash down here, an outbreak, which is predictable with all the protests. Um, people, people think it's just because everybody's going back to bars and, and going back to work, and that's part of it for sure. More testing is part of it, but it's also these protests with thousands and thousands of people had to have been a huge incubator for the virus. But on the flip side, on the positive side, we're really not seeing near the level of deaths down here as we're seeing in other places. And we seem to be getting more and more effective at treating the bug. And I think Houston's the one area in Texas I would point to is, is really catastrophically difficult right now because they're filling up their ICU beds. They're running out of space. 
I expect right. them to pivot and react well. But but us having to close bars and 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 ramp back restaurant capacity, it's discouraging. But it's one step in a long process. You know, and it, it is really interesting. I got some friends out in your neck of the woods, and I was talking to one of them the other night, and I was saying, you know, we lived like that for for a while while you guys had the luxury <laughs> of having things open. Uh, so. You know, I mean, I was talking with a Democrat earlier today who said it's not that it's a second wave in Texas. It's that they haven't hit their first wave. You know, I mean, so I don't know. All right, I want to go macro for a second with uh, George C., the CEO of Annandale Capital. Every economist is saying that it's going to be a stepped up recovery. And what that means is that the, the recovery will plateau either at the end of Q3 or the beginning of Q4, the timing of which with November 3rd, Election Day, writes smack in there could have a lot of implications on how independent voters and swing voters are going to vote. What do you foresee the, based on your expertise, how do you foresee the recovery going? Um, do you believe in a swoosh, a step up or you, I mean, what are you, what, what are your metrics telling us? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the $20 trillion question, right? In terms of who we're going to have as president and who's going to be controlling the Senate and all those kind of things, because it's going to have a huge impact on how people, Americans feel psychologically when they go in to pull the lever for one guy or another guy. And it, it's completely unpredictable right now. The, the, the signs from the stock market and the signs from the Fed and the executive branch with all the stimulus and everything else are pretty darn good that we're coming back pretty effectively. But will we see tremendous signs of that within four months? Maybe, maybe not. It, it's it's super uncertain, and it's going to take us years to to recalibrate our country. And some industries will never be the same. Some will be quite a bit stronger. Some of them can will, I, will be quite a bit weaker. Can I jump in there? Did the yeah. did the models that that everyone's using did it factor in the closures that we're seeing now in Texas, in Florida, New York, having new guidelines for quarantining? Did the models factor that in, or did what we're seeing now in the uptick in certain states? catch people off guard i don't think any, anybody who's paying any attention it should not have caught them off guard anytime wow. you're having more more people interacting with each other out in public you're, you're going to have a, a rash of additional spreading just because there's so many people who are asymptomatic with this bug so, so you don't think, I think I, and the reason i'm asking it george is because what i'm hearing from you is that the uptick and the barrage of you know new cases in texas new cases in florida new cases in new york the barrage of that is not factoring into the pace of the recovery come Q3 or Q4? Not not in my state, for sure, and I don't think in a lot of the rest of the country. I think we're done going in the bunker and being, being socially isolated all the time. I think people are going to get back to work, and we're going to have to learn to live with a lot more people catching this bug and more deaths and, and more fear, but we're going to get through this. And as soon as we get a treatment that's highly effective, I think that's really spelling the end of it. Everybody's saying we got to wait on a vaccine – I think they're being overly optimistic because we're not even sure we're going to come up with a vaccine, much less how quickly we'll come up with one. We just need some kind of treatment that 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 obviates the risk of death and brings people back to normal as quickly as possible. That's what we're really waiting on. That's going to be the key. Meanwhile, how do you think President Trump's reelection campaign efforts are going? Uh, he's uh, you know trailing nationally. I don't want to focus on national polls, but even in the swing state polls, he's trailing. Uh, lost some ground among senior citizens. What does he have to do to recover? I think people really forget their history, and they forget how wildly these kind of elections can swing. In 1976, Gerald Ford went into the fall 32 points behind Jimmy Carter and only lost by a point and a half. 
1988, George H.W. Bush, I believe, was down 17 points to Michael Dukakis after the Democratic convention, and he won going away and had a huge electoral landslide. So I I don't think the president's dead on arrival. I think he's still got a decent chance of, of pulling it out, especially in the swing states, which are really close, because we really are a 50-50 country. But to win, he's got to somehow get off his 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 grievance soapbox where he's always uh, talking about all his enemies and all the people that are against him and how wrong they are and start talking more about where he's going to take the country the next four years and why that vision for America is better than the one Joe Biden's out there slinging around from his basement. So he's got time to recover for sure. But the trajectory has got to change dramatically because the, the, the trajectory he's on right now is one downhill slide. It's, it's been getting worse for three months straight. and They've got to flip. They've got to flip that around. All right. And then what do you think in terms of the dynamics of the down ballot races? And I know you've chronicled all of this uh, over at uh, Annandale Capital. But when you look specifically at the Senate, you think it's going to flip? I'd give it a 60 percent chance it's going to flip. I, I think there's several states and a lot of it depends on how strong Trump runs in certain states. I think uh, Martha McSally in Arizona is almost certainly going to lose. I think Susan Collins is in real jeopardy. I think the Republicans have been wanting to flip the Michigan Senate seat. Unless the president wins Michigan again, there's no chance of that. Um, it, it really doesn't look too hot right now. But like I said, four months is a lifetime in politics, and we may have a very different playing field in November. And I, I think you've got to assess, too, how dismayed or how dispirited Republicans are going to be. Are they going to actually show up and vote? If they show up in a tidal wave of of enthusiasm for the president and in some of their Senate candidates, they might barely hold on to the Senate. But it's it's going to be really tight. And a lot of races are going to tell the tale that are within the margin of error. We didn't even talk about North Carolina. And no. I don't think Senator Tillis is in very good shape there either. So there, there's just a lot of weakness out there. And you can't point to anything but Doug Jones' Senate seat in Alabama that's a Republican flip, whereas there's, there's a good six or seven Republican-held seats right now that are in jeopardy. So the, the math right now is not encouraging. Hey, George, before I let you go, it's 4th of July this weekend. I was asking the last guest about barbecue. She was saying that the best barbecue is in Memphis. I take it a Texan like <laughs> yourself is going to disagree. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, I love Memphis, and I love pork ribs in Memphis. They're yes! Like pork like ribs. I've had them. I like them dry. But yes, we Texas barbecue is of course better and of uh, course superior. But it, where? It's give close. me a place. Give, give me that. a place in Texas. I've eaten my way across this country. But what? Give me a place. Where in Texas is the best barbecue? George C. I'll the you, expert. I'll give you three. Yeah, Snow's Barbecue in Lexington, Texas. Uh, Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas, and Louis Mueller's Barbecue in Taylor, Texas. Those three are spectacular. All right, we're going to go there one day, George. George C., CEO of Annandale Capital, Texas businessman, BBQ expert, and senior advisor. To Mark oh, wait, George, are you still there? Yep. Is Marco Rubio going to run in 2024? I've read an Examiner article. Oh, he wants to really badly, but so does yeah. his his peer in the Senate, Rick Scott, and so does Governor DeSantis. All three of those guys want Those Floridians. Incredibly crowded field next time around. Those uh, Floridians. Buckle up. I would be surprised if, if Rubio or Senator Cruz make a strong run at it again. I think their time's passed, probably. Wow. The former senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign, George C. Lots to get through there. I could talk. To George. George is one of those people that you could talk to, as is, as is our next guest, that I could talk to over barbecue or over hoagies for like 
forever. Adam Hodge, Senior Vice President at Ariel Investments. He used to work at the Treasury Department uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, Adam, where's the best place for barbecue before I talk policy? I can. Christine's <laughs> rolling her eyes in the group chat. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it's the best place for barbecue in, in D.C. has got to be actually on the 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 a big green egg in my backyard where I'm making making ribs and uh, and and brisket. So uh, wow. that's probably the best place in D.C. All right, good. All right, Adam, did you see the Biden press conference today? I did. I did. It seems like the Biden team and the Biden campaign is is really going on on offense on a whole host of fronts. Okay, but uh, and- I I was I was noticing some some dynamics. Right at the top of the presser, former VP Joe Biden gets out in front and he says, "Folks, I'm going to be taking questions." And no one knew that that was going to happen. And he kept going and going and going. And the aides were like, wrap it up. And he was like, no, I want to talk. I got the impression from the presser that Biden wants to be talking and he wants to get out there, despite the criticism that his team is getting for keeping him hidden in the bunker in the basement. Now, they're saying it's a strategy, make it a referendum election, not a choice election. But, you know, at some point you got to hear from the candidate. Am I wrong? And you you are are right that at some point you have to hear from the candidate. I, I think right now what you're seeing from from Biden uh, and and their campaign is just really trying to get to a uh, what is a, a full throated strategy for doing so in an effective way. And right, you can't argue that right now it's not it's not working well. Uh, this is natural for for the candidate to to think through you know, to to want to be out there to want to make the best case for for him him himself. Um, and so I think what you saw today was a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, kind of, um, he's out, out, out loose. And so he's, he's you know, going to try to, to, uh, you know, go as far as he possibly can. Um, but all in all, I think, you know, people tend to, to think and look for the Biden gap, but I don't, don't think that there were really that many today. He seemed pretty disciplined. Um, and, uh, and I think it just goes, it goes to, to show it's, it's always easier when you're on offense and when you're able to, to, to run an effective message that's on in your terms, not on when you're not on your heels. I thought it was interesting. Adam Hodge, who's worked at Treasury, who's worked all over the Obama administration. Now he's at SVP at Aerial Investments. I thought it was interesting for Biden to say, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, you can't. You can't have a choice of beating the virus or having an economy. In order to recover the economy and to make the economy stronger, you've got to first defeat the virus. I thought that was an interesting way of framing it uh, because Trump world has, has chosen to say, we've got to recover. We've got to reopen. We've got to research. We've got to come back. And Biden's saying, no, if we want to recover first, we have to beat the virus. But just look to states like Texas and Florida who thought they could reopen early for fresh evidence that trying to uh, have an economy uh, and that is thriving and and open while the virus is still raging is just not possible. And so you're not seeing them close down bars and restaurants in uh, in, in Texas and Florida. That's that's really, um, you know, proven to be, uh, you know, where you're going to see a a, a slowdown in, in their economy. And so. Um, I think what you what you have to uh, have to hope for is that folks start wearing their masks and taking this seriously, and and really um, you know we, we can we can kind of come out of the other side um, in, in the next few months once we get the virus contained because other countries around the world are showing us how it it definitely can be done. Okay, and meanwhile the Russia bounty. I do want to get your uh, take on what has been going on 
the continuing story of the Russia bounty. Republicans are denying this. Democrats are seizing on this. Do you think this is going to play in November or do you think it's just the latest spasm of another investigation? And maybe Americans have investigation fatigue or maybe they don't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. I didn't take a position. I think that that more than anything else, the the, the virus and, and the economic fallout is going to be the you know first, second, and third topic uh, on the agenda, uh, and I think it ties into to one of the messages and topics that Democrats want to focus on, which is healthcare. You know, you've, you've heard me say it before, but Democrats, you know, going on offense on healthcare uh, is really a ticket because people can understand that and they can they can attach to their own livelihood, and certainly now that we've stepped ourselves into a pandemic that has had you know cascading economic uh, effects for, for, for people who then lost their job and lost their health care, it, it, it really puts the stark choice in front of the people uh, pretty easily. A minute, less than a minute left. Who's who he going to pick for Veep? I gave you a, a top three, uh, which I know is a little bit of a cop-out, but I Quick. think it's, it's, it's Kamala, Val Demings uh, are, the I think, the top two. And then uh, it'll be actually, I'll give you top two. It'll be between one of those two. Interesting. I, I agree with you, actually. Uh, and then, all right, Adam Hodge, Senior Vice President of Aerial Investments. Thank you so much. Uh, and just remember, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, this is on my radar and I wanted to get it in, actually said today that another Dodd-Frank might be necessary. The former Fed Chair Janet Yellen. Wow. Buckle up, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Thanks for listening. And thanks for listening to me ramble about barbecue. To Bloomberg 991. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.